Welcome to Brief Success Radio, the podcast that brings you the most up-to-date information on training, nutrition, lifestyle and business with your host, Helda Barroso. Hey guys, welcome to another podcast here at the Breed Success Radio. Today I'm very excited to introduce to you Geraldine Van Oord, uh, also known as the Gut Friendly Dietitian. Um, Geraldine, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very, very much for having me. No, you're very welcome. I'm really excited about this. Um, uh, the gut is something that I'm very passionate about, and I work with a lot of clients that have a lot of issues with their gut. So I'm really excited to dig deeper onto this. So first of all, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to, to, to the, um, the listeners and tell them who you are, what you're all about, where you've come from. Okay, so um, I am a dietitian from Australia and I run a private practice that predominantly focuses on gut issues and food intolerance. So the bulk of my work is seeing people who have what's called a functional gastrointestinal condition or IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. And so the conditions that I would see or the symptoms that I would see associated with that would be things like bloating, wind, cramping, um, and altered toilet habits. So things like diarrhea, constipation, or quite often uh, we've got some patients who unfortunately swing both ways with their toilet habits as well. Mm. So I look at using diet therapy to manage those symptoms, uh, reduce those symptoms so that they can get back to doing what they want to do in their life, essentially, whether Mm. that be work or study or travel or all of those sorts of things that their gut health is holding them back from doing. Brilliant. Um, so what got you interested in, in uh, doing this? What got you interested in, in looking, in, first of all, being a dietitian and then looking more at the gut? Okay. So when I think back to nutrition and what sort of started, uh, what I, how I got interested in it was back in high school. Yeah. Um, I did food tech because I wasn't a very good cook and I fell in love with the nutrition module that we needed to do in year 11 or something like that. And so I decided that I would like to pursue nutrition as a career. Hmm. So I went to university. I actually got into a university that was about 90 kilometers from my home. So (laughs) I had to travel. I, I actually moved out. Um, after school and I traveled to a place called Wollongong in New South Wales in um, about 90 minutes south of Sydney in Australia, New South Wales, Australia. And I did my university degree there in nutrition and dietetics. Um, And moving out on my own, I had to obviously learn how to cook better and take care of myself. I found that to be really um, interesting and fascinating um, and it made me grow up a lot of course um, wasn't until I was married and I was pregnant with my first child that I really got into food intolerance so what happened was it's actually a pretty typical story with my patients these days is that um, we traveled over to the Philippines as a baby moon so that's essentially the last holiday that you're going to do before you start to you know before the kids arrive and that sort of thing and um my husband got sick over there and ever since he's never been the same Mm. so 
he had um, basically it looked like ongoing gastro. And um, everything that he did, well, there was, it felt like everything that he did, nothing was making it better. Mm. And what we eventually um, found out was that there were particular food triggers for him. And those food triggers were FODMAPs and FODMAPs can trigger gut issues in some people, not all. There's lots of different types of triggers, but mm -hmm. FODMAPs was a big one for him, particularly a FODMAP called um, fructans from onions and garlic, large amounts of lactose. Um, and then also, which is not a FODMAP, alcohol as well. So just to go back a little bit, FODMAPs are um, certain types of carbohydrates that are poorly absorbed in the gut. And for people who are sensitive, that can actually trigger off these gut symptoms. Mm. Um, and so by restricting the um, triggers that he had, he was able to get back on top of his gut health mm. um, and get on with doing what he needed to do. So yeah. he's not sort of tied to the loo anymore. That's where it all started. And then it continued on with my daughter having food issues. And uh, now my, my son as well, he has food allergy. So yeah. yes, yeah, professionally and personally, there's lots of um, gut health things that um, I'm involved in that yeah. way. So touching on um, food FODMAPs, what exactly are they? You mentioned a little bit there. There's, is there a different type of FODMAPs? And how, what do people need to be looking at in terms of if they feel they've got an issue? Um, if they wanted to look at FODMAPs, where would they go? What would be the best approach? Okay. So the first thing that you'd need to do is firstly get checked out by a doctor before you start to look at any dietary approach um, and just make sure that there's nothing more sinister um, that might be the reason for your gut issues. So with the um, gastro, sorry, with the IBS type symptoms, um, they are painful, annoying, uncomfortable, they can really be debilitating on someone's life. Mm. But what can be really frustrating is that when you get tests done by medical professionals, everything comes back as being normal. And mm. this is why it's, it's deemed a functional gastrointestinal condition. Um, and this is what I'd actually recommend doing first, getting things tested. And whilst it is frustrating to have tests done and things to come back as being normal, this is actually a good thing because it means that there's no physical damage that we can pick up um, on, on medical tests. That's where I'd start. And then uh, we look into FODMAPs as one of the potential reasons for your gut symptoms. So as I mentioned earlier, FODMAPs are specific types of carbohydrates or sugars that can um, affect people's uh, symptoms in those who are sensitive. And FODMAPs are found in just everyday healthy foods, everyday healthy foods, things that are actually really good for your gut. Um, so food intolerance is actually a, a very different world to general health, really, yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, so when we look at FODMAPs, if you haven't heard of FODMAPs before, if we really break it down, um, it's an acronym for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, what am I up to? Uh, monosaccharides and polyols. So essentially, um, the saccharide portion means sugars, and then the, the oligo, di, mono, that refers to the chain length of them. Mm -hmm. And then polyols is a, um, this refers to the structure. Anyway, so where you can actually find these FODMAPs are in things like certain fruits and vegetables, onions, garlic, wheat products, uh, legumes, certain types of nuts. 
Yeah. Um, also, uh, artificial, some artificial sweeteners. Mm. Um, so when you think chewing gum and uh, mints and so forth, uh, they can t- contain FODMAPs as well. Um, and so when you're eating a lot of FODMAPs that you're sensitive to, then this can trigger off your gut symptoms. And so the goal then is to pull back on what you're sensitive to um, so that you can control your symptoms. But you don't know, firstly, if you're sensitive at all, and then you don't know Oops, which yeah. ones you're sensitive to. That's the hard bit. That's just what I find because um, what, what is the, the, how quick do we know, for example, say we had onion and that was an issue. How quickly do we know whether that is an issue as soon as you, you consume that onion? Is it, is it half an hour? Is it 24 hours? Um, how, how long, how long do we, do we usually, does it usually take for you to get the, the symptoms from, from that if that is the issue? So if it's a true FODMAP reaction, um, the FODMAPs actually need to travel down your very long intestinal tract until it reaches the large intestine. And that's where it starts to exert its effects. So that would, um, and that's where it's fermented, so the F in FODMAPs. Um, So that usually takes anywhere between four and 24 hours, depending on what's called your gut motility. So the speed in which things move through your your digestive tract. But what we're also finding is that sometimes, and we actually don't really know why, but what we're seeing in clinical practice is that we can see quicker reactions. So particularly in the cases of things like reflux, you might actually see some, um, some quicker reactions there. And, and we don't know why, because FODMAPs are fermented in the large intestine, which, as I mentioned, is at the other end of the digestive tract, mm. whereas where you get reflux, that's at the beginning of, more so, the beginning of the digestive tract. Um, but in general, for a true FODMAP reaction, to answer that question is anywhere between four and 24 hours. So if you have a look back, sometimes, you know, you don't just need to look back at what you've eaten um, in your last meal, but um, what you'd eaten, you know, uh, four, six, eight hours prior to that. So what you'd eaten for dinner last night, if you're looking at things in the morning. I guess guess this is what would be very difficult for people if they're trying to eliminate things, is they might have had four different meals before they start feeding anything and then they're having to look back and well, which one was the trigger right and then remove that trigger and see if that was the one and then so that can be a long process right yeah absolutely and if you're so you can be um intolerant or sensitive to a number of different um if we're staying on the topic of fodmaps you can be intolerant to a number of different fodmaps and so when you're removing one at a time it might even though you are sensitive, you might still get ongoing symptoms. And, and so you feel like that FODMAP that you'd removed hasn't been helpful at all, whereas mm-hmm. it has. It's just sort of been masked by the other intolerances that you potentially could be having as well. Um, so what do we do? Yeah, exactly. The question. <laughs> um, I always recommend working with a FODMAP-trained dietitian if you are going down this route. Um, so firstly, you, you do want to get checked out for um, other medical conditions and just yep. make sure that it is IBS-type symptoms firstly. And then, of course, I'd recommend ideally working with a FODMAP-trained dietitian. The way that you can find FODMAP-trained dietitians is to um, use the, the Monash app. Monash University are the founders of the Low FODMAP Diet, and they have a Low FODMAP Diet app, and they've got a directory in there of FODMAP-trained dietitians. But um, just to give you a bit of background on, um, I guess, where you start if you were to implement a low FODMAP diet yourself, um, you would uh, 
I guess generally you to get the um, the answer the quickest you would do a short-term elimination diet so that's where you're reducing the high FODMAP foods um, so reducing all of them down for a period of two to six weeks and that would essentially tell you yes or no whether you are sensitive to FODMAPs themselves right it actually happens quite quickly so you, at any one time, you only have one to two days worth of food in your digestive tract. And so when you're getting rid of the high FODMAP foods, um, then you are, uh, you'll be able to see whether or not you are responding to the diet within that time frame. So we see, you know, a few days up to a week, you start to get um, a really good response if you are a responder to the low FODMAP diet, which actually is, um, if you've got IBS, it's three out of four people. So it's quite successful. Mm, good. That's, that's pretty good. I guess that's a good, good place to start, right? Yeah, yeah. What is important, though, is to make sure you're then reintroducing FODMAPs. So, yeah. uh, or re-challenging FODMAPs is, I guess, the, the proper term. And what that involves is um, reintroducing one FODMAP group at a time. So, uh, in a particular way. And that helps you to not only identify which of the FODMAP groups specifically uh, triggering your symptoms, but also the amount um, in which you can tolerate it before you yeah. start to get your symptoms. Well, it's different to food allergy. Food intolerance is, um, it works on a threshold level. So this, you can tolerate it, you can tolerate your food triggers up to a certain amount before you start to get your symptoms back. Yeah. Yeah. So it depends how much you have of that food to actually be a problem. Exactly right. You can get away with a small amount, no problems, but when yes. you have a larger amount, then that can be a problem for you. Yeah. So a little, I've heard about this in terms of beans, you know, obviously beans give you gas, but some people are able to have just a little amount of beans, whichever beans that may be, and they don't have any issues. Is that, is that the purpose behind it? Is that there's no intolerance within the amount that they have? Yes. Yeah, so Yes, let's talk a little bit more about beans or in, um, in Australia, we call them legumes as well. Yes. Yep. Um, so we're referring to things like chickpeas and lentils, yep. butter exactly. beans, that sort of thing. Um, so they actually produce gas and a little bit of bloating in everybody. Um, they are a type of oligosaccharide or the O in FODMAPs. And specifically, uh, they're a type of galacto-oligosaccharide. So it's a subgroup of oligosaccharides just to get a little bit sciencey there mm. um, and what happens when you eat legumes is that um, they travel through the digestive tract and then they get to the large intestines and we've got healthy bacteria that live there and they absolutely love to feast on FODMAPs and this is a really healthy process for the healthy bacteria that live there mm. because when they feast on FODMAPs they um they're able to grow and thrive and be able to uh, play a number of different roles in our body, like maintaining our immune system, weight management and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's this exact process where they're feasting on FODMAPs or fermenting FODMAPs that can be problematic for people who are sensitive. So in people who don't have IBS-like symptoms or gut symptoms, um, the bloating and the gas is quite mild or yeah. they might not even know. However, for people who have sensitive guts, the, um, the fermentation process that produces gas and bubbles actually press on their, our intestinal walls. And in sensitive people who have very overreactive, kind of like 
really dramatic guts, yeah. that actually speaks to our brain to say, whoa, painful. And then what we can see is lots of bloating. Um, mm. And what it can actually also do is change our toilet habits. So it can make you run to the loo or it makes you um, more constipated. Uh, but yeah, so they're really healthy gut foods and it's about the, the portion size. So thankfully there is a low FODMAP portion that most people are able to tolerate. Um, right. So a quarter of a cup to half a cup yeah. in general. These types of foods. So they're very healthy foods that most people should still consume as long as they can tolerate it, right? Absolutely. Do not go cutting out foods if you do not need to. Yeah. And then if you're sensitive, there might be a portion size that you can still tolerate without getting symptoms back. Yeah, amazing. So in terms of IBS, um, what are the, the biggest issues that you see people coming to you uh, with with IBS? What what is what have you seen have been the biggest triggers for them? Um. Triggers as in symptoms? Yes. Oh, all of the above. So I see, uh, I see a lot of bloating. Um, I see a lot, of, um, a lot of extra wind, a lot of belching or burping, um, stomach gurgling, um, diarrhea, constipation, swinging both ways, um, and reflux as well. So It doesn't have to be all at once. It could be just one of those, right? Yeah, some people have just some of those symptoms. Some of them have all of the above. Yeah, that's the ones that have all the above. I feel sorry for them, right? That can't be yeah. nice. No, it nice. sucks. And yeah. how, long, how long do you, do you feel once they start actually looking into it and there's nothing sinister going on until they can actually bring everything under control? What have you seen that, that, yeah. that shows so when they, that? Uh, yeah, when they start to look into um, what their food triggers are, um, if they're on the money with, you know, going down the, the right route to finding what their, symptom, um, their symptoms are triggered by, it can be a matter of days up to a week before they start to feel better. Okay. It's very, very, yeah. With, with the clients that you work, and again, I'm going to go more to the, my side of things. So I work with mainly fat loss clients, right? Um, mm -hmm. And obviously adherence is a problem, as you can imagine. Um, how do you find a, people adhering to a, a diet plan or adhering to... A, oh a new yep. structure is a problem. How do you find yep. even pe people that are even in pain and have all these issues, how do you find their adherence is to, to your uh, approach towards it? Um, it's actually really good. Oh, good. So, yeah. Uh, so what I initially see is that they um, can feel quite overwhelmed, particularly if they're looking into a low FODMAP diet themselves, they can feel quite overwhelmed with all of these foods that can potentially be triggering their issues because they are foods that they probably eat a lot. And so they feel like they have no idea yeah. um, or have no foods left to, to eat. So the way that I help with um, people adhering to um, a low FODMAP diet or whatever dietary investigation that we're looking into is by um, substituting. So, you know, for example, when people start their cooking, quite often they use um, onion and garlic as their base uh, yes. for lots of flavors. And um, so I guess in, in that example, what we do is uh, just talk about some, some really easy swaps that will still add some flavor into their foods. So for example, instead of onions, something that's a bit more tummy friendly would be, um, would be the, the green tips of shallots right. or spring onions. I'm not sure what you call them over there. Yeah, um, we call we sort of call them both. Um, yeah. We don't 
what we call them. Um, so using <laughs> that alternative um, or using um, garlic infused oil as an alternative. So you're actually still getting some garlic flavor without the FODMAPs, which is incredible. And thank goodness that we can still do that. Um, but yeah, so just providing substitutes for what they were eating previously that was high FODMAP that might be triggering their symptoms to um, low FODMAP alternatives. Fair enough. And in, in terms of things like, for example, caffeine, alcohol, which can be a, a very big issue, right? With people with digestive issues. Uh, do you tend yep. to see people giving up those quickly or is that a little bit harder? Um, so it would depend on the, the person. So alcohol and caffeine um, are definitely food triggers for some, um, but they're not for everybody. If someone comes to me who is having maybe one or two coffees a day or, um, you know, one or two alcoholic drinks, I don't really see that as an issue. I won't cut that out. So mm. don't feel like that they need to be cutting out um, unless they particularly feel like it's a trigger for them personally. However, if someone comes to me who is having, for example, five cups of coffee a day or who is a binge drinker, mm. uh, then that's something that we would be discussing um, and we'd be talking about considering reducing those to get on top of those gut symptoms yeah. um, and see how their symptoms improve. Amazing. Um, a little bit of, in terms of food uh, allergies, what's the difference between a food allergy and a food intolerance? Okay, so a food allergy is a, a, an immune response to a protein in food. So quite commonly, it would be things like um, dairy, um, gluten, wheat, um, soy, peanuts, tree nuts, those yeah. sorts of things. Food intolerance, um, there's no immune response um, involved and it is also seen at any stage in someone's life. So it's also quite more, it's uh, more common in adults um, than in children. So we see a lot of food allergy in, in kids and sometimes kids can grow out of food allergy whereas food intolerance um, is, is not. But the symptoms can be quite similar sometimes as well. Mm. In terms of food intolerances, is there a particular trigger for them to appear? For example, let's say we eat a certain food every day for years. Could that cause a food intolerance? No, that doesn't okay. cause a food intolerance. Um, we don't really understand the, the, the world of food intolerance. It's quite a complex world. Okay. Um, but what we do know... Uh, I guess in the context of IBS, what I commonly see is some sort of trigger. So whether it is, uh, so usually what I'd see is some sort of change or stress, whether it be a physical stress or an emotional stress. Um, and if someone has a family history of gut issues, then it can almost be like it's um, the gene has been switched on. Right. Um, and then people start to get these sorts of ongoing gut symptoms that just don't go away. Um, and then in times of stress, we see the gut symptoms worsen as well. Why is that? Why is it that uh, uh, physical stress, mental stress? What, how does that have an impact on the gut? So what we're thinking is that there is a change in the gut, um, gut bacteria. Um, and then the, the communication between the gut bacteria and the brain is impaired. So they're not talking properly. And so that's why when you um, have IBS um, you, and you are 
you've got all of these gut symptoms. There's this impaired message to the brain saying that there's um, lots of pain and bloating going on here. And then likewise, from the, the brain end, um, if you're feeling stressed, then that will talk to the gut and it will turn off the gut. Um, and um, for patients who are more on the constipation side of things, it will block them up. Or in patients who are more on the diarrhea side of things, it will speed things up. Mm. Um, and it can be this vicious cycle because your gut symptoms um, are very painful. And so then the pain makes you, you know, feel depressed right. and anxious, yeah. Yeah. which then makes gut symptoms worse. And so yeah. it's this awful vicious cycle that some people can get into as well. And what would be your recommendation to anyone going through that right now to improve themselves? Uh, a number of things. If it's stress-related, um, you can look at a number of um, more informal lifestyle um, changes. So things, so looking at things like um, your sleep habits, your exercise, um, looking at your lifestyle and looking at ways that you can reduce your stress levels. I guess it depends on what the That's actual right. stress is. But yeah. if you do need more professional help, <clears throat> There are some psychological therapies that can also help this side of things. And when you've got a calm mind, you've got a calmer gut as well, which means that your food intolerances improve. Mm. So the tolerance, um, things like cognitive, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, relaxation techniques, and also something called gut directed hypnotherapy is another therapy that's used with great success in people who have um, IBS. So targeting the gut, uh, sorry, targeting the brain rather than the gut. Using all of these, so targeting both the gut and the brain uh, in terms of therapies, you need to do this to get on top of your IBS. Mm. It's not the one, it's not just a, a diet approach. You definitely need to look at things holistically. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the things that I've come across is um, uh, fasting to, to help if you've got any kind of gut issues. What's your mm -hmm. thought process on that? Oh, that's a great question. It's been coming up quite a bit. Yeah. Um, at the moment, research, um, the research is actually showing that it may not be helpful, believe it or not. Okay. <clears throat> but personally, if it's working for you, then I think that's okay as long as when you are eating, you're eating nutritious foods. But <clears throat> I guess to look back at fasting and gut issues, Essentially, what we find in the research is that smaller, more frequent meals actually helps with gut issues um, because large meals means potentially you could be FODMAP stacking, um, but it also just generally places a lot of pressure on the, the digestive tract. Yeah. And so this um, increased pressure, which can lead to things like reflux. Um, so that's why the, the smaller, more frequent meals is more so recommended than um, going long periods without food. Also, uh, it's to do with stomach acid as well. Um, if you're fasting and, and you're thinking about food or you see something that looks delicious or smells delicious, that can secrete stomach acid. Um, and it's the acid that can also trigger some reflux as well. So just some considerations. Um, if fasting works for you, then that's great. You know, nutrition is not a, a one size fits all. Yeah, everybody. Everybody uh, can approach it differently, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, you touched quite a bit on acid reflux. Um, do you come across that quite a bit? 
Yeah, I do. Um, probably, probably not a lot, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that makes sense. Maybe about 50% of people I see would also have reflux um, as part of their gut symptoms. Um, okay. I see it a lot with um, constipation and bloating as well. It all seems to be linked in together. Mm. Um, one of the things obviously with acid reflux, if, if it's something that you go to the doctors about, the first thing that they give you is a PPI, right? Um, an acid blocker. What are your thoughts on that? Because there's, there's a lot of different things out there saying it's okay, it's not a problem, it's been around for since 1980 or whatever it is and then other people are saying no no you shouldn't be on that it's not good for you long term what are your thoughts on that yeah i think so firstly if you need your medication and if it's been prescribed by your doctor then absolutely take it um however what i don't think a lot of people are aware of um with ppis or proton pump inhibitors um is that the way that they work is by reducing stomach acid. And so that reduces the reflux. But we actually need stomach acid to digest foods. And so sometimes what we can see then long-term is food intolerances start to develop because the digestion process isn't taking place properly. Mm. So that's my thoughts on PPIs. So uh, in terms of uh, if someone has got reflux and the doctors advise them to take them, uh, what would mm -hmm. be the next approach for that person if? if they wanted to fix the actual root cause of the problem. Um, because as you said, you know, you go, when you go to the doctor side of things, they give you the, yep. the drugs and then they may put a camera down you or whatever it might be. And they, they may find, no, find nothing. And you're left like, what the hell do I do? <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, what would be your, the approach for that person then? Because it's, it's a long process from the point, say, for example, they've gone to the doctors, they say they've been having these symptoms. It takes on PPIs. We're then going to send you for this, test first and then that test that could take months um mm. what could they do in the meantime to try and get to a root cause themselves mm -hmm. um so what if they're working on their own one strategy would be to keep a food diary and yeah. see if there's any in their reflux but i feel like this is going to be much more helpful if they do this before they go on ppis because the ppis okay. is going to um mask what's causing them reflux because that's what it's meant to do right like it's mm. meant to help them feel better exactly yeah. um yeah so i would be before going on a ppi if i would be speaking to the doctor about whether um other approaches are appropriate so di looking at other dietary approaches are appropriate for your particular case yeah um, and you know i guess some things to be looking at would be firstly um having smaller regular meals um making sure that you're not eating too close to bedtime so you know having at least three hours before bedtime um and then i would be seeing keeping a food diary or just taking a mental note about whether or not you can see any of the uh, common or typical triggers uh, mm. with with food and reflux so some examples caffeine alcohol Peppermint, tomatoes, citrus. Yeah. Uh, they're probably some really common ones. Um, and then if that's not enough, you might need to go down the food intolerance route. And that might be FODMAPs or it might be something else. Yeah. It's just, again, trial and error a little bit. It is. Um, but definitely trial and error in a methodical way is going to get 
to the root cause quicker. Yeah. Uh, however, some people, if you've got long-term reflux, um, the acid is going to be damaging to your esophagus. So that's also yeah. not a good thing. Of course. So PPI, you need a PPI. Yeah. But regardless, there are some those dietary strategies that you can implement um, potentially before a PPI or whilst you're on a PPI, if you're still getting a bit of reflux or other digestive issues as well at the same time. When you say long-term in terms of giving you uh, issues, esophagal-wise, how long is long-term for somebody to... What, what, what have you seen in your side that, that could be a problem in terms of time without PPIs? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I don't know uh, scientifically. I, I don't think the, the literature even knows scientifically how long people need to be on PPIs before it starts to have an effect on people's long-term digestion um, mm-hmm. and food intolerances. Um, I see people who have been on PPIs for years. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and they come to me with, with digestive issues and, and whether or not it started before or is a result of PPIs, yes. we don't know. Yes, fair enough, fair enough. Um, in your clinical practice and what you see on a day-to-day basis, what do you see are the biggest food triggers to create health issues in terms of digestive issue? So the biggest food triggers that I would see would be, um, there's four. Yeah. And then perhaps. (laughs) Um, Onion. Yeah. Onion and garlic. uh, Wow. Because like you said, you know, they, they, they both so prevalent in most people's diets, right? Yeah. And they're everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. Um, and they're really, really good for your gut, unfortunately. And just people who are sensitive, we, we need to limit or, or cut them out. The other thing is that food intolerances can change over time. So it's always um, a good idea to re-challenge yourself every Try. six months. Yeah. Um, and that's with my husband at the moment. We're pushing the onions again. Um, and he seems to be tolerating them a lot better than what he was a few years ago. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah. So going back to the, um, the four biggest food triggers that I would see, yeah. onion, garlic, uh, lactose. So lactose is um, the naturally occurring sugar that's found in dairy products. Yep. It's not in all dairy products, uh, but you would see lactose in dairy products such as milk, yep. uh, regular yogurts in larger quantities, and some cheeses in larger quantities, particularly your fresh cheeses, cheeses in larger uh, quantities. Not like yep. your, your hard yellow cheeses, like a cheddar cheese or a tasty cheese. Yeah, They're virtually like um, yeah, so a lot of people actually go dairy-free completely. And I don't actually see this to be necessary. Um, and you are cutting out a lot of nutrition when you're going dairy-free. Mm. Uh, but people are more likely to be reacting to the lactose component rather mm. than the dairy component. Yes. Um, you need to choose lactose-free or reduce your lactose in your diet to get a better symptom relief. Now, the fourth one is something called fructans again so it's another type of fructan uh, it's found in wheat products wheat rye barley those sorts of gluten products um gluten intolerance has been around for a very long time mm. people get tested for celiac disease it comes back as negative but they can um you know be sure that they react to wheat type products um and this has previously been coined non-celiac gluten sensitivity or some people just call it gluten intolerance. Um, 
and with recent research, just a few years ago, what we um, found um, is actually an Australian study, and I see this all the time, all the mm. time in my practice, is that people are not reacting to gluten. They're actually reacting to the fructan, which is the FODMAP. And it just so happens that the, this FODMAP is um, prevalent in, it coexists in um, the same product. So, for example, bread and pasta contain both gluten and they contain the FODMAP fructans. Wow. And so when you free, there's obviously no gluten, but coincidentally, there's uh, reduced levels of fructans as well. Even, in, so gluten, feeling, even in gluten-free pasta and gluten-free bread, you still get uh, a fructan. So, yeah, not all of them um, yep. are low FODMAP, but um, yeah, they, they are reduced in this particular FODMAP called fructans. Right. So people associate um, being gluten-free with better um, digestive symptoms, whereas it's actually the fructans that is the issue, not the gluten. Right. Yeah. With a bit of, uh, I guess, detective work, you can also figure out whether your problem is actually gluten or whether it's fructans as well. Right. Is there, you know, sourdough bread? I've, I've heard a lot of good stuff about sourdough bread. Does that contain gluten or fructans? Yeah. So that is a great question. So sourdough bread is one of the great examples on how you can tell whether or not you've got a gluten intolerance or a fructan, aka FODMAP intolerance. Okay. So sourdough bread is made um, using wheat flour. Well, uh, it can be made with other flours, but let's use wheat flour as an example. Wheat or, or spelt, for example. Both of these grains contain gluten, but in the process of making sourdough, the naturally occurring yeast feast on the fructans within the flour. And so it reduces the fructan load. And so if you've got a fructan intolerance, that's why you're able to tolerate sourdough right. and you're not tolerate regular bread. And so that's how you can know whether or not you actually have a fructan intolerance or whether you have a gluten intolerance. If you can't tolerate sourdough bread, potentially you could have a gluten intolerance or it could be something else. But, you know, um, gluten is, is probably the bigger thing here, yeah. Right, very interesting, very interesting. And those, those foods that you're talking about, you know, they're, they're very prevalent in most people's diets. And it's probably the yeah. last thing that they're looking to remove, such as the garlic and, and, the, and the onion. Um, like, for oh. example... My wife is uh, Indian and uh, Indian cooking is based on uh, garlic and onion, which is, yes. which is a massive thing. So for someone like an Asian person eating mm -hmm. curries, curries every day, they're going to find that very, very difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can. There's um, some other products. So apart from the swaps that I already mentioned, there are some other um, products that um, the FODMAP world has been bringing out um, to help with... Um, the the flavor side of things um there's a new product in new zealand that was released last year that's an onion and garlic replacer so you add that to your cooking and oh i love those products they're really really great okay um they're called free fod garlic and onion replacers there's also actually what i believe to be an indian um i can't remember actually if it's a spice or or something along those lines um and I don't know how to say it, and <laughs> I haven't used it before. Yeah. But it starts with a asophita, something like that. I'll I'll have to 
look it yeah. up for you and send you the name of it. I yeah, can't that'd be remember. Amazing. And it very often. If you come or, across yeah. it, let me know because that would be pretty, pretty good. I can. A lot of my clients are uh, Indian, so it would be really nice to, to maybe pass that on to them if they are having any issues to at least try and take that out and see whether that's the problem or not. So that'd, yeah. be, that'd yeah. be pretty good. That'd be pretty good. Um, all right. So um, in terms of the digestive side of things, how long do you see from the moment you see someone? to the moment mm-hmm. they, feel, they feel a lot better. How long typically is that process when you work with mm-hmm. someone? Okay, so um, when we do a food intolerance investigation, or um, yeah, so a food intolerance investigation would typically be three to six months, just depending on um, well, a lot of factors, but basically yep. how, how many intolerances they do have. So some people might have a FODMAP intolerance and that's it. Or some people might have FODMAP intolerance plus other triggers like real, they, they might be really sensitive to alcohol or, or caffeine, or they might have another food intolerance on top of a FODMAP intolerance. And that's where things can get trickier, um, mm. but also um, take a little bit longer to get to the, to the bottom of. Um, but essentially, I usually tell my patients, allow three to six months because that also gives you time to, um, you know, go about your every day as well as go through the food intolerance investigation process, which is elimination, then rechallenge, And then what is really important is personalize or expand. So adding those foods that you're not intolerant to back into your diet, because firstly, I feel like people can be quite, um, uh, quite hesitant or a little bit scared when they don't know too much about the diet to go on it initially until they know what to do. Mm. And then it flips and they're too scared to go off the diet, even though they know gone through the food challenges and they know what their triggers are. It can be absolutely scary to start to reintroduce foods back in because you don't want to go you know, you, again, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it's a balance between figuring out the two, reintroducing foods and balancing that with good symptom control. And touching on that point, if somebody would want to get in contact with you to work with you or, or at least uh, have some communication with you, how would they get about doing that? So you can find me on Instagram. My handle is at the gut friendly dietitian. I'm also on Facebook. Or my website is www.thegutfriendlydietitian.com.au. Amazing, amazing. Uh, before we go, I wanted to ask you a couple, of, a few questions. So I live by uh, four pillars. They are health, wealth, love, and happiness. I try and have a 100% balance between all of them. Okay. If one goes out of balance, then it brings the other ones out of balance, and that doesn't work. Um, so, in terms of your uh, the, the, the name of the podcast is a breed success radio. So what does success look like to you in terms of health? So what that would look like is being able to do whatever it is that you want to do, whether it be, you know, working on your dream career, whether it be traveling, whether it be studying, um, success in health means that you are well enough emotionally, physically, mentally to do whatever it is you want to do. Amazing. And in terms of wealth, what, what does success look like to you in that field? Oh, that's hard. Everybody um, hates that question. 
basically being able to get by and, and be comfortable with um, <laughs> uh, paying the bills, having a roof over our heads and yeah. having a little bit over for the kids for when we go. Awesome. In terms of um, love, what does success look like to you? Knowing that you have, or knowing that I have friends and family only a phone call away, um, regardless of the situation, is what I would regard as awesome. And in terms of happiness, what does success look like to you? Accepting things for what it is um, and being present and grateful for, for what you've got. Yeah, amazing. Um, and all of that perspective. So good. Love those answers. And before we go, I always ask, what are the top three books that you'd recommend to anyone listening to this right now? Oh, a little bit nerdy, my recommendations. But That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> if you're interested, you can check them out. Oh, definitely. Uh, I've got four because they're not, they're kind of books, not really, probably not the books that you're looking for, but um. All right, so the first one is, I love this new book that's out. It's called Eat Yourself Healthy. It's actually by an Australian dietitian. Her name is um, Megan Rossi. Yep. But she actually has been living in the UK for a few years now. Okay. She's known as the doctor and she's released a book, I think it was last year, mm. very recently. And I love that book. It's all about gut health. I've got um, that book. Also... Oh, do you really? Yeah. Yeah. The fave of mine. Um, that's number one. Number two are my nerdy books. So they, it's sort of equal between um, the Monash booklet. I'd actually prefer the Monash app um, because that's much more up to date on um, FODMAPs, learning about the low FODMAP diet. Um, so I guess we can call that kind of an ebook-ish, but yep. they, they do have a version. Um, and then also the other equal one is um, the, what's called the RPAH Elimination Diet Handbook. You may not have heard of that one before. Mm. Um, RPAH stands for Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. It's an Australian hospital that founded another type of food intolerance diet. And it's also a common food intolerance that I see in, not as common, um, but a common food intolerance that I also see in um, those who have IBS. So it's called a food chemical intolerance. That's my second. Um, and then my third is actually a cookbook. <laughs> so nice. a little bit yummy is uh, run by um, Alana Scott. And she has a cookbook that she released last year yeah. um, called The Gut Friendly Cookbook. Beautiful name. Amazing. And low FODMAP and allergy friendly uh, recipes in there. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's what I'll, what I'll try and do is I'll try and get the links for all of those and pop it in the show notes. If people want to get them, I'll just give them easy access. You know, the, the Monash app, how do you spell Monash? M-O-N-A-S-H. A-S-H app. I'll see if I can find that and try and pop that in the show notes. If people want to download that, is that, is that something that they, is free of charge to get or do you have to pay for it? No, you do have to pay for it. If you yeah. need to go down the FODMAP route, though, this is something that you cannot do alone. Do without. Sorry, hang on a tick. Okay. Are you still there? Yeah, still here. Sorry, had a call coming through. No um, so, with the Monash app, um, 
it was developed by Monash University, who founded the Low FODMAP diet. And the money that uh, you pay for the app, which is, it's $13 Australian. So I'm not actually sure what that, no, no, uh, what that is. Yeah. Um, but uh, the money that is raised from the app actually goes back into research into the low FODMAP diet. Awesome. So it's definitely well spent. Um, and it's, it's definitely something that you cannot use. Uh, sorry, cannot live without if you are going down a low FODMAP route. You mm -hmm. can Google until um, the cows come home, all of the low FODMAP lists, but you'll find that they're all conflicting and they will be out of date. Yes. So I would highly recommend that you do not do that. Awesome. Amazing. Well, uh, I guess the last thing I've got to say is thank you so much for um, jumping on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I know you've got a very busy life. Uh, so really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us. Um, and uh, fingers crossed we can do another one in the future again, maybe on something different. Um, but it's great Thanks. to have you on. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so, so much for having me. No, you're very welcome. I'll have a lovely rest of your afternoon there in Australia. But I'm going to start my day over here in, uh, in the UK. And uh, I'll see you soon. And not raining. I will. See you later. Take care. It's nice to see you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.